Justin Farmer, inviting you to be in community with us, with people making a difference. Today, our guest is James Jetter, director of the Full Citizens Coalition program and director of civic allyship at Yale. James, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Um, I've met you, well, before I even go into uh, how I met you, um, I always try to, you know, ask people what their hot takes are on just, you know, what's a random hot take that you have, something to lighten the mood, people get to know you. What's a, what's a hot take? <laughs> you know, I recently just came back from Jamaica, um, and, you know, a, a hot take I have is that we don't have fruits and vegetables in the U.S. We got fruits and vegetable Yo. cousins. <laughs> I'm with you. I just came back from Germany. We do not have fruits and vegetables and water in the United States. We have like little dirty cousins, <laughs> like that dirty step cousins, for real. You said step cousins. Uh, no, there's no blood relation here, yo. It's like it's just wild because like you. Even an onion, I, I was cooking and I swear that I needed a huge big onion and just a little chunk had enough flavor for the whole meal. And I was like, oh man, maybe I overestimated what I needed. Yo, we don't have anything real here. We don't even have real sugar. Like, our sugar is like super sweet. It's not natural sugar. Like, it's something wrong with everything we're doing that they're doing to us here. Like, I would just had a month of sugar cane. Like cane sugar, so I was like, "Man, Pepsi tastes good." Yeah, right. <laughs> and I saw, I was like, "I don't like Pepsi." I don't drink Canada Dry in in Germany. I drunk. I was like, "This is amazing." What is this? I said, "Oh, they're not poisoning me." <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 you heard it. Food is fake. Um, go somewhere real. <laughs> um. I can't even remember where we met. I think it was Dwight Hall. Dwight Hall. It was Dwight Hall. It was uh, around this time you were de- contemplating a run. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. The other was like, you got to meet this kid. He's great. So I was like, all right. Yeah. Man, six years ago. Yeah. Seven years ago. Yeah. Wow. It's been a minute. Time is fine. Um, so... You know, I, I, I know you from where your story picks up from, right? I know you were incarcerated, know you got an education in prison, and have just known you as this amazing advocate uh, on, on voting rights, on prison uh, uh, reform. Uh, so I, I guess my first question is, you know, how are you feeling about the state of things right now? Um... I'm not. I don't have any feelings anymore. Concerning <laughs> this stuff. I'm completely numb. Um, I'm not moved by rhetoric or by opposing sides or by candidates. Um, community moves me. Mm. I think that that is the the apex of 
you know, civic engagement is communities understanding their power, mm-hmm. what they can do together, and how uh, you can't ignore the ballot, but it's actually yours. Like, there's so many ways to approach it, to protest it, um, that create power and doesn't leave you sub, 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 subjected to the whims of someone that you didn't want in office to begin with. Why, why is voting important, right? Like every election cycle, people come on, politicians come on. This well, is the most important election ever. Yeah, every election is like the apocalypse election. <laughs> this is it if we don't get it this time. Um, but that's not our story. Our, uh, and I don't. And I think the the largest we don't know our story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what we do with Full Citizens Coalition. Is that a large part of our work is just community education on um, the history of voting and how we as people, black people in particular, but black and brown people, and because of mass incarceration, all people, um, because prison uh, may appear colorblind, but it's going to appear, starting to see shades more and more, uh, you know, current pandemics of this version of opioid crisis Mm. has incarcerated, uh, you know, people from suburbs and negative prisons have roughly about 17% for, between 14 and 17% uh, white people in it. So, you know, that's, that's, uh, about 1700 people in the state. And so when wow. you throw in probation, that, that number jumps, when you throw in rehab clinics, that number jumps, you know, when you, so, um, and in one way or another, we all become disenfranchised. Um, Voting is important because it's the it's the only power guaranteed structure that we have, right? We're not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness to me is the first opioid crisis, right? But life and liberty depends on your ability to elect a, or a government that represents the people and structures how we live. And that's supposed to come from the people, like e pluribus unum from many one. Hey. Dropping knowledge on us. Uh, <laughs> I know our, you know, the, the, the national, like, model for years when, you know, was e pluribus unum. You see it on coins, you see it on all the stuff, and it's from many one where it's speaking of how our government is structured, and it's in the reverse, and I don't know Latin, so I don't know what the verse would be. It'd be like minimus unum or something. I don't know. But, you know, um, yeah, that that's the structure, especially locally. Local government should be run by people. And if you look at the statistics of how voting is happening in our communities, it's working against us because we're not voting. It's working against us because we believe that to vote means to vote for somebody and not to vote for a community. Um, and that's by design. Um, we have a history in Connecticut that is very specific to disenfranchisement and um there there's a bunch of myths in this country that are upheld like somehow the south is rural and the north isn't but Connecticut's like majority farmland and you know the woods that's it's literally this, called yeah. the cut yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right and so is mass so like you have all these wooded states up here um New York outside of New York City and like five other small cities it's just woods and small towns it's rural but um and it's it's extremely antiquated and connecticut's particular story is that you know we've always projected projected this progressive stance but internally we've been very um restrictive and punitive and um uh implicitly racist Mm. so um and explicitly racist um in 1848 slavery ended in this in this this state as a practice but uh, legislatively it was written in that we could not have the right to vote right and um you know that didn't change in 1865 with the ending of slavery as a as a nation or in the southern states because slavery technically only ended in the southern states um it didn't change till uh, the 15th Amendment in 1875, where we're forced to, the state was forced to give voting rights to African uh, African American at the time. Um, and you know we've had hurdles to 
the ballot ever since. You know, we've had literacy tests, literacy requirements, um, and then you launch into certain felonies beginning to be disenfranchised in the 30s, and by 63, it was all felonies, right? And that's important because 65, you get you get you get your second other part you get your second uh bill of rights like your second uh civil rights bill um that expands voting rights right you had the first one in in it wasn't in eighteen eighty five your first bill it was on the books for three years <laughs> and then the Supreme Court threw it out as a country you know we voted it was you know you couldn't discriminate because of race color it was structured in eighteen eighty five and then mm-hmm. the Supreme Court found that it reduced the powers of individual states and, you know, threw it out in 1888. We get it back in 18, we get it back in 1965 and 68. We get the Civil Rights Act. They got the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. And then in 73, you have the beginning of mass incarceration. In 68, 69, you have uh, the war on drugs begin. Right? And so immediately, uh, these rights are attacked. And they're attacked because... You had a generation that began be after the civil rights movement because you know that ended. Um, Bayard Rustin, Bayard Rustin predicted the end of that of that era in '59. You know, like he saw the end of the civil rights era coming. But you have what's brought out of that is this rebellious, constitutional, armed black movement. You know, the Panthers and these other liberation parties who were what I would call the height of our civic engagement because they were interacting constitutionally. They were interacting by law and also arming themselves and structuring community all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a generation that was killed or imprisoned. Like you, start, you see these men now coming home, uh, these political prisoners now coming home 50 years later, you know, uh, to die. Um, and what we never had a chance to because of the ending of that era so fast, so 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 violently and so um illicitly because heroin creeped into our communities uh strategically. You know, it didn't just find its way in like it was you know, the feds were the feds and the CIA, we all know about COINTELPRO at this point and how they use drugs to but at the same time you you know, that 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 same period of time you had uh George Bush Sr., who was the head of the CIA, and they discovered Freebase in the 70s, you know. Um, and by the mid-'80s, you had a narrative around our, our uh, uh, the reinvention of our narrative, right? So slavery ends. During slavery, the question, the huge question among the white elites and those in power was, do we have the capacity for morality? Right, we just don't. We didn't have it. Like they, they believe morality came from like these internal structures within the chemistry of your body, and we couldn't produce it. Um, and then it moves at the end of slavery into criminality, that we are somehow inherently criminal. Right, and then you see iterations of that throughout our history. You see that right after slavery, where they start, they move from the slave codes to the black codes, start incarcerating us around vagrancy around you know around um all these moral all codes. these yeah they become they become legal codes now they become law so you know law is this flimsy thing and they be, it's constantly pressed against our body and so they basically re-enslaved us at, at, at the very end of slavery because they had uh convict leasing which killed more free blacks than the last 20 years of slavery did. in the five years of convict leasing that that ram that ravaged the south you had more free blacks dying than they did in the last 20 years of slavery Right, and then so, um, can you say I'm not familiar with convict oh, leasing? Oh, convict leasing. So when you got arrested for vagrancy, you know, you know, we had, we didn't have anything. So a lot of people still worked on the, the plantations, um, but you had to get paid, right? Because you were no longer a slave. They had to pay you a wage, or they figured out ways to take advantage of your illiteracy, have you sign bad contracts, give you bad plot of land, and now you're basically an indentured slave because you're working this land to pay off a debt. That you never will, right? And so you had these systems that were that were uh, 
quickly taken advantage of um, by those in power in the South, the whites in power in the South. And at the, the root of it, the biggest part of it was that everything we did became illegal. And so you fines and fees, right? <laughs> so well, we had no money. And so you would have plantation owners who would go pay all the fines for 50 Negroes just locked up. And the courts would release the, the Negroes to their custody and they would go back to the plantation and die because now they're not invested in your body. They're invested in the court system, mm-hmm. right? The court owes them. They paid off a debt. Um, and, they, you know, if you had to do nine months on a farm, it was considered a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, at least in slavery, you were property. They, you know, you were a horse or a cow. They had to upkeep you. Couldn't, couldn't let, you know what I mean? They had no, you, had, you didn't have that value anymore. But it would work you to death, literally. And, um, you know, that, that system didn't last long. The state decided that they wanted that labor, that they should be the, the rightful beholders of that labor, and they would be far better stewards. And it's the reason why you have, like, paved roads. Like, all that started through convict leasing, and then shifted to, to the states. And you seen you had whole states who, in 1864, had complete white populations in their penitentiary, very low numbers, and then by 1870, complete black population in the penitentiaries, right? So this is—it's not a new narrative. It's what—it's what they know has worked, and so you see reiterations of this. You see with uh, 1950, with the birth of a nation, the black criminal, you know, who can't help himself but to ravish and rape a white woman, and we need these vigilante saviors with masks on and these, and, and you know bed sheets and the idea that that we are inherently criminal has always been passed down since the end of slavery right that was the shift and so you have this era where we're being hosed and bit by dogs and marching and you know um, arrested but there's no criminal it's not there's no illegality it's just the more who has the moral right and the world has the, the world decided that we had the moral right, and the nation had this. The nation succumbed to that to a degree, but when you're able to now shift laws and infiltrate our communities, right? So, deindustrialization, um, all these factory jobs that leave in the late '70s, early '80s that disappear from our communities, um, the welfare structure that in a 10-year period between '61 and '71. Obliterated the homes in a way where, in many cities, you would have in 1961 you had pretty much the same unemployment rate amongst black men you had in 1971. The difference is in 1971, two thirds of them weren't were no longer looking for work, right? And so you had this period of of that welfare. We, you know, to a degree, we allowed. I'm not one to say that we don't. We shouldn't take any responsibility because. We allow certain things to creep into our communities. We had the opportunity to say, no, we're not taking that system. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very enticing. You know, it's very enticing when you've already been politically disenfranchised and, you know, you sit under the weight of legislation and how it plays out in your community and there's no employment, there's no opportunity. Um, and so by the 80s, you know, we, the narrative had been recrafted in its most spectacular way. Um, in the 70s, we were revolutionaries, and you couldn't take that from us. You, you might have hated us, but that was your own personal racism. We had heroes, mm-hmm. right? Um, by the 80s, the national narrative was Willie Norton, the welfare queen. Um, you know, crack cocaine had created this uh, pulled reality in our community. You had crack fiends and crack dealers. You had the poor getting poorer because... They were getting high, and no one was raising their kids. And you had these kids who became drug dealers and uh, had an influx of cash. Like, Reagan was the deregulator of all systems. But you had the deregulation of our communities with uh, crime. Like, the amount of drugs that came in, the amount of guns that came in, it was unseen. And so you had this... this and by the government, too. And by the government. Yeah, we, I mean, we, ne- we have never owned... The capacity to bring tonnage or the relate we've never we've never held the relate i mean it's the whole point of contra you know what i mean like we've never held the relationship to, to put this stuff together to trade drugs for guns to to 
to give guns to guerrilla warfare happening in Colombia and Nicaragua. Like we, we we just have our hoods and we just know that hey man, like you know what I mean? Like so we've never held those relationships, but we we have this infiltration and then we have this explosion of money, um, and no real per with and no real purpose for it. So we become flashy, and you know the narrative was set in a way that it was easy from there on because that's all that white society got of us in this new age of media, you know, the birth of the Fox news channels and, and of the CNNs. I'm not going to, it's not one sided. They both are polar um, and problematic. Um, Is that liberalism? No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah like I said, I, I don't, I'm unaffiliated for a reason. I, if you look at our history, in two parties with their foot on our neck in one way or the other. Um, as much as we can bad mouth uh, conservatives and, you know, the 94 crime bill has, has spiked the prison population in a way that nothing else has and incarcerated in a way that nothing else has. Um, living death sentences for multiple charges, like a broad array of, and without any, um, to this day, without any real reckoning. You know, and mm-hmm. that's our sitting president. That was his his sponsor bill. That was his uh, floor speech. It was the administration of the Clintons that we hold so dear that that created the myth of twelve year old Philadelphia boys with cartel Columbia cartel ties. You know, this is her speech. It's the same woman in twenty sixteen that says opioids know no bounds, as if it was wrong for crossing to the suburbs. You know, like <laughs> like this is our policies are are problematic in in that becomes the view of voting instead of studying the history of that they've created these things that have locked us out and we are now saying it doesn't work but it's working exactly how it was meant to work that with Mm. it takes few votes to be a mayor in any connecticut cities Um, we always have white mayors you know we don't have you know we don't have women mayors we don't have black mayors we don't have definitely don't have black women mayors (laughs) few and far between right and so I mean, New Haven has had a black woman mayor. Um, D.W. Wong. Couple. Um, yeah. Yeah. A couple, There's a couple. 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 It's a couple. <laughs> a couple, right? And and um, uh, so we were we get caught in these these systems, and the outcomes are always tragic for us. Like we have. Less than twenty percent school proficiency in our fourth grade reading and reading, writing, and math levels, right? And mm. it, it's a, it's important to know those numbers because the school to prison pipeline is something that everybody talks about, right? Everybody talks about school to prison pipeline and the guns, right? Mm. But the underlying issue to those things is that we have poor school proficiency in the fourth grade, which is the year they start figuring out who's going to prison. This is your trajectory, right? Um, we have horrible housing. And huge housing burdens. Right? The neighborhoods that are the most incarcerated are the neighborhoods that are labeled by Census Bureau as recap communities, and this is all through Connecticut, right? Um, which recap means racial or ethnic concentrated areas of poverty. Those neighborhoods have high housing burdens. I mean, the people are paying fifty uh, percent uh, or more of their income to to live in poverty. Well, they should only be paying thirty at max. Well, not even the the myth. Thirty's a myth. Like if you, they should be paying about eighteen. Mm. Should be about eighteen. Like thirty, thirty's a myth. Thirty was the the markup itself, and now the market's changed, and, and it's because you have politicians who own property. They can't see not making money, and they'll put that before a rent cap. They'll issue a study bill, right? Um, while people's rent keep going up. Where, you know, to live in a, in what they consider a dangerous neighborhood in a two bedroom, it costs you between thirteen and fifteen hundred dollars, and you're like, "This is crazy. Who makes that over here? I'm not living here. Like I, even if I wanted to live here, it's not really where I want to live. It's too much, too much going on right now, right? Um, and so rent is an issue, and so you you have these kids who uh, they grow up in schools they don't like, schools that aren't teaching them. They live in a way that they see their parents struggle, you know, where there's always more month than money, you know, and um, they don't have the engagement, the labor engagement where they actually have the interactions with professionals, 
Like, you know, your teacher isn't a professional you. She's somebody you probably don't like or you do like her, but she's just, you know, like a second mom or a problem, right? Like you either hate your fourth grade teacher or you love her, right? So, you know, so our kids are growing up without the interaction of saying that uh, my neighbor's a doctor, my neighbor's an architect, my neighbor's, you know, uh, a, a different carpenter, a different professionals. So where now your first girlfriend or boyfriend dad is somebody you might work for for the summer or intern when you're you know i don't care if it's just vacuuming in his office but you're in his office you see the workings of whatever business that is or you know you're on a work site um, learning basics in construction um with the lack of those experiences puts a very low shelf on the expectations of work so if all i see is minimum wage work or unemployment and that is the scope of what I believe exists for me. And when those are the realities, then when I go outside and start selling drugs, you can't cry, put the gun down now. Mm. You can't you can't cry it now. I'm out here because this is all you've given me to look at. Facts. Right? And my mother can't show me nothing else right now. She at work. When she get home, she got to figure out bills, get some sleep, and go back to work, you know. So the breaking of our homes, the breaking of our families, um, the conversation on civics has been removed for four generations, and mass incarceration has played a huge part in that over the last 50 years. And the disenfranchisement of people has left us believing that we have no place in a process. But yet our communities, our cities are these chocolate havens, right? They are brown, they are black, and they are brown <laughs> in in large amounts, 74, 75, 70%. How do we not engage and control and then imagine, right? We're locked out of that. For those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to just in time conversations WNHH FM 103.5 uh, our guest James Chatter of the director uh, of the full citizens coalition and civic allyship at Yale um, we were talking about voting and, and you broke down right how we got to where we are um, I guess, you know, what are some of the things that y'all do at Unlock the Vote? And then, you know, what are some of the barriers to uh, pre-trial uh, voting? Oh, so like, um, Connecticut has made some some headway in how we communicate. So they have free prison phone calls mm-hmm. and they have emails. So we are in the middle of an email campaign because last year we did a mailing campaign and we have an office full of return mail from DOC, but we're having really great success with the email campaign to our pretrial detention. Um, and then, and then we'll go on to move into uh, the prisons, and just start educating our people on, um, what it means to be engaged and what, what they're able to access the day they come home and how they can right now be an advocate to their loved ones and their friends on why they should get involved. And then really get um, arming them with the information and the and the templates of how to make these have these conversations with the family. But um, we're about uh, fifteen hundred emails in to a list of thirty five hundred people uh, sitting in our county prisons, and um, we track engagement. I know some of these emails have been email threads. Like we, we wow. per person, we get about seventy five emails. We get seventy five emails a day. We have five people working on it. Wow. And so um, we're allowed to send seven five emails a day. So we figured we had a timeline to be able to send everybody the initial information, um, a response email, sending them on information on how to get registered. And it's our timeline has expanded because people are actually engaging us on like it's 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 kind of dope. Like people are like pushing back. Like well, why should I get involved now? Like I have, I'm facing this. Like how does this help me? I'm in prison. Like and, and really being able to walk through with that. We've also gotten some really um, uh, disturbing emails that you know we just. We have to respond and find a way to engage, you know, 
some folks are like, you guys are racist. You're talking about uh, blacks only. And I'm like, no, we're talking about the history of disenfranchisement in the state. Mm-hmm. And the thing about mass incarceration is that it now has grown to include you. Mm-hmm. So we start with at the root to show you how far it's come and how it has affected all of us. Right. And that, and, and, it, and it's important that we do it in that manner. So we, we, we found some really dope engagement and we're now collecting emails of, of, of her, of barriers. And I'm, and I'm, uh, going to send them over to secretary of state. Cause I have now have guys telling me that their counselors tell them they can't give them a registration form. And that's false. Anybody mm-hmm. can give you, give you a registration form. Right. And so, um, you know, um, I'm, I'm going to let the Secretary of State know that that's happening in her counties. Um, outside of that, you know, um, we do community outreach. We do a barbershop tour that will be starting um, in September. Uh, we partner with local businesses. Or we partner with small businesses in Hartford, New Haven, Bridgeport, uh, New Britain, and New London on doing outreach where, you know, we have materials and tell people, like, the history of civic, of c- civic death, the history of civic death mm-hmm. and how mass incarceration plays into that how feeling disenfranchise disenfranchisement holds it and, and, and kind of how it permeates throughout our community um, becomes self-inflicting at times. Um, yeah, we just, we looked at as many countries as possible. We, we lecture on college campuses. We work in the halfway houses on educating uh, men and women coming home on why they, why they should be active, on what this actually brings to them on an individual level and on a community level. Like, how, how are we harmed? Um, I, the 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 goal is a long goal. Like it has to be a long game. We we've, we've been locked out so long. To we need a generational shift to 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 really buy in to how we take back our communities through, uh, you know, all three assets of political, economic, and social. No, that that is fantastic work. I I uh, um, you know. One of the things you were kind of t- uh, alluding to before uh, was local control, right? And that, you know, I think oftentimes when we're thinking about politics, we think national, maybe state. Mm-hmm. But at the local level, there's so much change that could be made. I I, I, I think if if COVID has revealed one thing, it's how much power is at the local level. Like the amount of ARPA dollars that came into the cities and the amount of it that has gone unaccounted for has, you know, hasn't produced stronger, more robust local economy. Like there was so much money. Three mil, 3.2 million for cameras wasn't what we needed. (laughs) Right, right. To be able to police and be more punitive is this is the perfect thing, reason why we need this money so we can put more people in prison and. Watch more crime in these communities. We don't need we don't need any cameras on that street. That street's fine. <laughs> uh, Everyone's think, a homeowner on that street. I mean, they don't want cameras on their street. I, for some reason, I think East Rock got zero cameras, unless it's a red light camera. <laughs> right. So, like, for, yeah. For some reason. But if, if if we had more control over our local government, if we, if people, if we understood that, uh, to me, it's like this. If you apply for a job and that job required you to have a yearly review and monthly check-ins with your boss, what do you think happens when you don't show up for your first monthly check-in? Got a problem. Got a problem. What happens when you don't show up for your second monthly check-in? Do you make it to a third? What do you think happens at your yearly review when you've slacked at the job all day? They tell you, you know, your contract's not going to be renewed. You're out of here. But, well, that's the bar we have. We don't uh, we don't look at politics as if our these people in position are public servants. They work for you. They work for us. Justin, you work for people. What I do. You know, if we understood that as a people, if, if, if as a community, you know, the possibilities are, are, are endless in how we can restructure our communities and how we can direct money and dictate how SBA money is given out to some of these CDFIs in our cities to, 
mm-hmm. how they how the money that that is given to them is structured to be linked to community and to community, not to people who come in community for the sake of getting the money, but to community to uh, how like you know what I mean like we, we it, there's so much that can be done that um we deserve more than you know attractive high schools that don't teach in community centers. We need the community centers without a doubt. We need the beautiful high schools, but we need the beautiful brains in them being developed. Thanks. You know, we need um, local control over housing, and our schools need not to be funded by tax dollars from in cities where nobody owns anything, where a uh, university owns half this city, the state and nonprofits own half of Harford. You know, like, and then Man, the houses. Man, real generous. It's seventy-five percent. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's, it's, they're moving that way. You're gonna rename it in a minute. Um, but yeah, so you know, property taxes funding our schools isn't working. But like, there's things that we can have more more saying than just saying it, than just holding the sign up. You know, than just showing up for a public hearing, which is all important things. You don't stop those. But we can also hold their feet to the fire in that ballot. We can create protest votes, where, you know. Instead of voting for a Republican or a Democrat, we vote for... If you had 100 people vote for Paper Cup, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That'd make... That'd make a huge... They can vote for Bob Marley. Make a statement make to a people. Statement for people. I think you can do more than that. If you can get people... Because not showing up... You already, like People say, well, let's just sit out this year. We've sat out every year. That doesn't mean anything to them. But... If thousands of us get up and cast a vote for, you know, Bob Marley or whoever, right? Then they would. What this shows them is that we've organized in a way that they. You said see. get up, stand up? No. Get up, stand up. <laughs> like, just think about it, right? In the city of New Haven, you get elections, 8,500 votes wins the election. Well, I don't like any of the candidates. Well, 5,000 of us vote for Barbara Fair, though she ain't run, right? And. What that tells whoever wins is that there's a voting block that I can't afford not to vote for because they have the numbers to write anybody into the ballot next year, the next election, right? They have the numbers to contest me. And if they're this organized, their numbers are probably going to grow. I need to figure out what, what they want. I need to figure it out because there's far more of them than there are of those who voted for me. My numbers don't change. Like, Person like election numbers don't change. Politicians know their numbers, so if I know that I can win eighty five hundred, I pretty much just got that eighty five hundred. I don't know if I can get any new votes. New votes aren't real, but if we create these new types of votes, we can, we can create new rebellions and through the electorate, right? Like we can do different things that show power and flex, you know, and still do the stuff that we love to do: walkouts and rallies and protests we don't stop doing those we just those are your organizing points your right. victory you know parades but we show them that we're taking our cities back out of curiosity so i a, a quick question and, and and then i want to touch on the documentary but um you know last i checked there are three states that allow incarcerated people to vote. Three states in D.C. Three states in D.C. Yeah. Should incarcerated people be able to vote? Of course. <laughs> um, the the thought of incarcerated people not voting only comes about within, with uh, the end of slavery. Mm. Um, I, I was just in Germany and those, the People didn't understand the work I do. They were these sh- we had a lot of great conversations. Talking about people in prison voting was the shortest conversations. It'd just be like, of course they vote. They're citizens. And I'd be like, yeah, so you never thought about, like, thought about what? <laughs> Taking their rights? What? For what? You don't take people's rights. Thanks. Right? Like, it, it, it's, it's not a... It, and so when you look at low recidivism numbers, you look at the fact that people can still vote. They're still citizens. They they they're intact in a way that we make sure people aren't intact. We make sure that this 
there's a lack of humanity surrounding the body of the person incarcerated in the state of Connecticut and maintaining their rights. You, I, I feel like for us, it's super important as, as, as a people because this incarceration was used to remove us from a system. Like we wasn't 100%. We knew we was locked out. We tried the economic thing, and then you get the bombings of Tulsa. You get, you know, what I mean, you get the the end of all black owned sports because we got integrated into a system where we had no ownership. And like, you get all these things that everybody said, oh, "This works, this works, this works, this works." And then we're like, "Okay, let's try pop." Like, we weren't willing to try what we've been locked out of for so long. And then you get this push for these rights, and then you never get a chance to like self actualize what it means, mm. right? But Men and women in prison, uh, for lack of a better time, have a lot of time on their hands to really think through this. And if they're in communications, they can do a lot of repair. Facts. Right? They, can, they can put this back into community and they can stop the abuses that are happening within our prisons because elected officials now have to, rep- have to truly represent them and realize that if this is why I question how fast we get there because what undo what what will undo mass incarceration is voting because mm. don't the politician want the prison uh dictating whether or not they in office or not <laughs> so you get number the numbers decrease like we let them out they don't vote when they home right like <laughs> but but they would they would for the first time in a lot of people's life they will understand and, and be involved and engaged in their communities and take care and uh, an ownership that they never imagined, and we deserve that. Thanks. Same with education. Same with we deserve it. There's nothing we need to beg or ask or plead a case. I don't, you know, you, it sucks pleading cases and having to explain to people why you're a person. <laughs> you know why. Had they had the the history and the current narrative surrounding them that surrounds you, they'd understand, you know. And you have to constantly explain that. Um, you have to constantly put in the back burner, right? And I think more of us are coming to that. I hope more of us come to that realization, um, especially with this last session I just ended, where you know these. Democratic majorities really sold us, sold us down the river on a lot of issues in the state. You said the usual? <laughs> a lot of issues. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yo. Like, our issues become the issue to take the back burner. And then we like, well, I'm tired of it. They're like, what are you going to do? Vote for them? You know what comes with them. I really don't know any difference that comes with them at this point. Facts. No, I, I, I. I I think that's one of the things that as I think about local control it becomes less about the parties and more about the action and the policy and and you know that's where all across the country I've seen exciting things you had New York pass a bill on, on greenhouse emissions you mm-hmm. you have you know, a couple of years ago, we passed a um, uh, 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 bill to allow tenants unions a bill mm-hmm. to 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 uh, have representation for people in in uh, uh, eviction proceedings. So mm-hmm. there's things that can be done. Yeah. Speaking of things that can be done, this documentary talking about the horrors that have gone on in prosecuted or uh, 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 malpractice. Can you break down to us what's going on? What are the next steps? Where? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, the documentary is about um, a young man named Malik Jones, a friend of mine, who in 1992 was framed and arrested in city New Haven for a crime he didn't commit 
and was subsequently convicted of that crime, has been sitting in prison for 31 years, um, fighting for his, his freedom, fighting for his exoneration. Um, in the midst of the new narrative that I was talking about, that was created around us, like in, this, in the 80s, is that what came about of what came about of that narrative is um, the cop dramas, mm. you know. And what we got sold was that propaganda. Cop- propaganda came crazy towards us, and that we needed these rogue white men with badges to play above the law in order to bring the justice of the bad guys, and we accepted it. And so it's not. It wasn't. This, this thing on TV, it was the reality of, of our inner cities. You know, um, Malik's case is an example of police illegality, a frame job by the police, and the codification of that by the prosecutor's office, knowing that they were they were going after someone who had nothing to do for crime. Um, they were, uh, it's not just malpractice. This is conspiracy. Mm-hmm. It's one of many. Um, Daryl Valentine, uh, Gaylor Salters, um, with the doctor that they just, uh, um, the forensic doctor, I'm forgetting his name, that they judge uh, a couple of days ago just ruled that he was making up evidence. Yeah, so this has happened in our state with our, with the DNA lab, right? Um, it, 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 but it's happened in New Haven, where New Haven, though, is roughly three percent of Connecticut's population, it holds. Fifty percent of Connecticut's exonerations, <laughs> you know. So Armand Adams, the the, the latest exoneree, who just was exonerated uh, two and a half weeks ago, right? Um, and there's more coming. There's more coming. So you have this era of policing between the late '80s and the early 2000s, where the biggest criminal organization in the city was the Navy Police Department. Facts. And you know, if they they were in the '90s, very actively recruiting drug dealers forcefully recruiting them through framing them and when that didn't work they would throw them in prison um illegally they would frame them they would frame them for a case uh in malik's case he got framed for a homicide that he didn't commit he didn't have the capacity to commit he had just been shot himself he was on heavy heavy medication they knew within the first 48 hours that he wasn't a shooter he wasn't involved they had nothing to do with this case and they pursued him um and you know, his son has lived 30 years, 31 years of his life without his father. You know, like, it's, it's, it's the, we, the effects of what was done and how we allow it to stand. The, the effects of the fact that uh, Connecticut has a conviction integrity review, that uh, a commission that won't review any of these cases, that, that um, won't free people, won't hold the state accountable, won't hold the city accountable prosecutor's office that won't step up and say we did it extremely wrong in this era and all of this needs to be looked at again his case is his case is a prime example of that and um you know uh, right now we we're trying to push it as much as possible um to for people can can really get a look at how these the police department and the D's office was operating um there's a website tied to it that's far more evidence in the documentary. Um, it's called freemalik.com. And, um, you know, he goes for oral arguments on Church Street, 141 Church Street, uh, July 31st. So we'll be rallying outside. Um, we're rallying really to bring awareness. I mean, our rally won't have an effect on the proceeding, but it it, it will allow us to let, the, to let the state and the city know that we're here and we're aware of it and we're, we're demanding that it, that, that it takes the proper precautions. He doesn't have to be in federal court. We've mm-hmm. created the avenues to rectify this. The state has a review commission that can look at this and say we 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 did him wrong right. and free him. Right? And and we're we'd rather leave it to the hands of the court um to to wade through all the legality that courts create. Courts create so much legality that, you know, his oral arguments isn't about his innocence right now. It's about does he have the right to be in the feds? Did he exhaust the the, the state is saying that he didn't exhaust all his state remedies yet. <laughs> right? They're not they're not even they're not arguing guilt. Like, like, or, or, or not arguing did they did they mess up. It's that well, he should let the state fix it. And he tried. And these courts kept shooting him down because his you know, his current his his prosecutor is a current a current prominent judge in this state. 
and no no state judge can overturn this case. The feds have to, or the state has to. And the state has the ability to. And so um, that that is our goal. Our goal is to that these men have their day. These men have their day. That they, that not just Malik, but all these men have their day, and that the state has this reckoning. The, uh, the, um, you know, I, so this July 31st, this will be outside of, uh, the federal courthouse on, on 141 Church Street. 141 Church Street. Um, how can people stay connected to you? How can people stay connected to the projects that you're working on? Um, you can, uh, email me at, J dot Jetter at full citizens org. Um, you can jump on our website at full citizens org. Um, subscribe to our, our mail outs. We do weekly email outs of what's happening with us, where we're at with our campaigns and where we're going to be at. Um, we'll be all through the state over the, from now to election, just doing outreach around why everyone should be involved. Everybody should be casting their vote, not for any, not for any candidate, but for community and, and have those conversations. And um, we'll be working with other organizers around these wrongful convictions um, and just really trying to dismantle what's been created and what's harmed us the most. My, my, my favorite question always to ask people is, what is a song that we can remember you by that we can connect with? So what's the song that that's speaking to you now or a song a favorite song of yours that we can just remember oh this is james jetter it's, it's probably a song many of you won't know it's actually like four four it's a it has four parts to it it's like so you can check any of them out it's uh it's called babylon's fallen um uh by um hezekiah so um yeah yeah no, I'm sorry. It's called Freedom Wins. Freedom Wins 1 through 4.5. So Freedom Wins. Freedom Wins. Okay. W-I-N-D-S. Freedom Wins. Well, thank you again, James, for coming on the show. Um, until next time, uh, let us continue to plant seeds of things so we can grow together. Traveling man, moving through places, space and time. Got a lot of things I got to do. God willing, I'm coming back to you, baby boo. I'm a traveling man, moving through places, space and time. Got a lot of things I got to do. God willing.